received an invitation to attend a major conference uh, in next June. Uh, I was struck immediately by the theme of the conference. Uh, the theme of the conference is uh, towards the conversion of the UK, towards the conversion of the United Kingdom. And I was rather surprised by the title and also the subtitle, which you probably can't read on the screen, but it says, uh, Exploring Issues of Strategy and Growth, this residential conference is for ordained leaders of larger Anglican churches. Which I don't think I am. However, an accompanying letter from the organiser of the conference, Dr. Peter Brearley, explained it was no mistake. The letter inside said, Dear leader of a larger church, greetings, I know you are not an Anglican church. But, before you throw away the enclosed leaflet, please do look at the programme. And he continues, note what he says, Many feel that larger churches have a critical role to play in seeing the theme of the conference move towards reality. Larger in this context means churches with normal Sunday congregations of about 350 or more, including children. While the number of such is 2% of all Baptist and independent churches, collectively they account for 10% of average Sunday attendance. Now, I must say, when I read that, I was not at all encouraged about how we're going to convert the UK and added to that the headlines in the media every day, the sad headlines regarding the deep divisions within the Anglican communion at this time, simply add to that pessimism. And while the church in Scotland and off Scotland, as so often is the case, is not even mentioned, uh, there is little cause for confidence closer to home. No, in the face of increasingly militant secularism and a resurgent Islam positioning itself to fill the religious vacuum, Talk of the conversion of the UK seems to most commentators more of a pipe dream than a reality. So, is there any cause for optimism? An optimism based on reality rather than wishful thinking for the Church of Jesus Christ in the United Kingdom in the 21st century? I believe there is. And for evidence we can look at no better place than the beginnings and growth of the church in the first century, which has some remarkable striking parallels with the situation here in the 21st century. Uh, the story, of course, of the growth of the early church is described in the New Testament book of Acts, which we've been studying as a church this year under this title, The Spreading Flame, for it describes how the followers of Jesus responded to his mandate to be his witnesses, that's our challenge for the year, our verse for the year, beginning from their base in Jerusalem and spreading outwards to the ends of the earth. However, we've seen that this growth was not even, and it wasn't unimpeded. In our recent studies, we saw how the flame of the gospel finally broke through that great firewall that separated Jews and Gentiles for centuries and generations with the news that non-Jews, Gentiles, could be accepted by God through Jesus without becoming Jews first. And we saw last week, or hearing uh, what had happened from the Apostle Paul, the church in Jerusalem finally accepted that this was the truth, the reality, and welcomed Gentiles in. 
And a remarkable church, we saw last Sunday evening, made up of people from a Greek culture and background, sprang up in the city of Antioch, northern Syria. And from this base, we'll see God willing after the summer break, a missionary movement was launched which took the gospel into Europe and beyond, and the book of Acts finishes with the gospel right in the heart of the empire in the great city of Rome. Now, this has some interesting parallels for our day. For the church of Jesus Christ is actually growing dramatically in almost every part of the world except in those sending countries from which the missionary movements were first launched, like our own some two centuries ago. However, in another parallel, back at home base in Jerusalem, the church comes under pressure from a threat which threatens and challenges its very existence. But the theme today, the good news for them in their day, the good news for us in our day, is that the spreading flame is also the inextinguishable flame. So that's what I want us to look at more closely this morning in Acts chapter 12. And that really will help to have the Bible in front of you. Uh, There are Bibles in the pews, and you'll find it on page 1106. Now notice, first of all, whenever... Wherever God is at work, the evil one is also at work. Let me just say it again. It's obvious, but take it for granted. Wherever, whenever God is at work, the evil one is also at work. So we see here in Jerusalem, the story begins with enemy action. Verses 1 to 4. Just as God uses people to do his work... So does the devil. And in the New Testament, when there is an assignment against the followers of Jesus or Jesus himself, the name Herod can usually get you on the short list. If you read the Bible, you're probably confused by the name Herod, which occurs lots of different Herods in the Bible. One thing they share in common, other than their name, is ruthless and murderous ambition. Uh, The father of this dynasty was the man who called himself Herod the Great, who as well as murdering many members of his family, he was the one who wiped out the baby boys in Bethlehem in an attempt to eliminate the infant Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. You can read that. We studied it at Christmas time. It was one of his sons, Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, who executed John the Baptist by beheading. And that was the same Herod that Pontius Pilate, when Jesus was on trial, he sent Jesus to this Herod, Antipas, and Jesus refused to say anything to him. And now it's one of the grandsons of Herod the Great, it's a very confusing story, uh, that we meet in chapter 12. In fact, his own father, the son of Herod the Great, had been killed by his father. You can get this sorted out later, but don't worry about it. As long as you're not a member of the family, you're safe. Uh, this, this Herod we meet in chapter 12 had led a very checkered career he'd grown up in Rome his father had been bumped off by his father uh, he was a bit of a playboy he got into debt and had to run away 
He then said something very unwise about the emperor, the Roman emperor Tiberius, and got put in prison for a while. Uh, but his fortunes changed when Caligula became emperor of Rome. You remember Mad Caligula, no one with a horse and everything. If you don't know the story, you can read it up sometime. Uh, but he grew up with him. They were childhood playmates. And so this Herod, Antipas, was given authority. And the next emperor, Claudius, actually gave him back nearly all the lands that Herod the Great had possessed and ruled over. And he'd given him the title king. So here's this king, King Herod Antipas. And part of his rule included Judea and Jerusalem. Now Herod and his family were greatly disliked by the Jewish people because they weren't proper Jews. They were actually Edomites. So this Herod Antipas did all he could to win their favour. When he was in Rome, he did as the Romans did. When he was in Jerusalem, he did as the Jews did. He presented himself as a devout Jew, an observer of the law of Moses. So, when an opportunity comes for him to ingratiate himself further with the Jewish religious establishment, he's ready and willing to take it. Now, just backtrack a minute. You remember in the early days of the church, great persecution broke out. But after the conversion of the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, it died down. This may be because many of the first Christians had to flee from Jerusalem. And those who remained in Jerusalem were largely Jewish by background and kept their heads under the radar. And they were kind of tolerated just about by the Jewish religious leaders as within the fold rather than outside of it. However, the recent decision to accept Gentiles into the church had reawakened suspicions and provided, as such situations do, the opportunity for a political opportunist to step into the situation. And Herod Antipas was a political opportunist par excellence. If he sided with the Jewish religious leaders against this church of Jesus Christ, these followers of the way, he would not only gain favor with them, he'd also keep in the good books of Rome because these were the kind of people who were disturbing the peace. So, Luke describes, as his chapter opens, Herod's actions against the church. We read, first of all, that he arrested some who belonged to the church. The literal Greek translation is, he seized with evil hands some who belonged to the church. However, he doesn't stop there, but follows their arrest with the execution of James. Verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, put to death, with the sword. Now this James, of course, is the brother of John. You remember the three inner disciples that Jesus uh, particularly drew to himself, Peter, James, and John. This is James. He's taken, he's arrested, he's executed. Now, just stop for a moment and think about this. This must have been a devastating blow for the Christians. Stephen was the first martyr, but James was the first of the twelve to die for his Lord. And not only to die, but he was beheaded, a method reserved for murderers and apostates. And I would imagine many of the early Christians asked themselves, why has God allowed this? And the answer is, then and now, we don't know. But we do know that God, the sovereign Lord, to whom these believers prayed, when they first face persecution in Acts 4, remember we looked at that, to whom they undoubtedly prayed for James is the Sovereign Lord. That he did allow it. He's the Sovereign Lord over life and death. Now, 
we may well prefer when we read the Bible to focus on miraculous escapes such as we're going to do in a moment when we come to the story of Peter. But all I would say is this. Such escapes, such situations, such miracles are not commonplace. If they were commonplace, there wouldn't be miracles. All of the apostles that Jesus chose, apart from possibly John, were martyred for their faith. There are far more martyrs in church history than prison escapees. And this continues to our present day. On Wednesday this week, as I received the news of this conference, I also got an email from Christian Solidarity Worldwide. Let me just read it to you. We are writing to request your urgent prayers and action on behalf of a Christian community in northern Colombia, Latin America. On the 15th of June, Asio Hernandez, a church leader from the community of El Murmullo, was taken by force by armed men who were waiting for him on the road as he travelled from El Murmullo to the town of Tiralta. The men took him to a place called Revoliatico Peak, where he was beaten and then disappeared. It is presumed that he was killed and his body was thrown into the Ura Hydroelectric Reservoir. Aziel is survived by his wife Fanny and their four children, Ediel, 16, Rodent, 14, Nelson, 13, and Lionel, 3. Fanny is also a member of the church leadership team. Five days later, on June the 20th, the community, the majority of whom are active members of the Gethsemane Church, which belongs the Association of Evangelical Churches of the Caribbean received information that 11 more people had been targeted for assassination by the same armed group. It is unclear what is behind the threats, but a number of armed groups are present in the area, including the remobilized paramilitaries. There are also reports that the new paramilitary groups have entered into agreements with the FARC, a left-wing guerrilla group, divvying up control over the local cocaine trade as well. And despite appeals to the authorities, they have received no protection, and the communities fled to the local town to try and get some sort of protection. And they have requested our prayers. Now, that's just one story from this week. Unless you've got your head in the sand as a Christian, such stories can be multiplied again and again and again and again. And I simply ask you, in the relative comfort of the West, whether we have a theology which encompasses persecution, suffering and death. And not glamorous death, sometimes death at the hands of petty political opportunists. Just look what's happening in Zimbabwe at the present time. Look what's happening in many different parts of the world. Look what's happening in Iraq, where the Christian population is decimated and many have fled for their lives. Look what's happening in the land of our Lord's birth, where the Christian community is largely being forced out. That is the situation throughout the world. And Acts tells the true story. And church history tells the true story you remember that this James in question, do you remember? If you know the gospel stories well, he and his brother John had gone to Jesus and asked, we'd like the best places when you get to your kingdom in heaven. And Jesus said to them, are you able to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Are you able to drink the cup, the cup of suffering I can suffer? Oh yes we can, they said. And Jesus said, yes you will. And now the prophecy about James has been fulfilled. The way of Christ is the way of the cross. It is the way of suffering 
and sometimes death. And unless we're realistic about that, we become unbalanced Christians. We need to focus on that. Maybe some of you face death and bereavement in your families. The Christians, not all Christians, friends, die glamorously. Some die very painfully. We're not exempt from that. We live in a fallen world. And some Christians stare out the world. There are more Christians who died for their faith in the 20th century than all the other 19 put together. And what is happening now is increasingly happening throughout the world. And we grieve with those who grieve. We grieve with God's people. That is why we meet together for prayer. Come to pray with us on Wednesday. We pray for the persecuted church. We pray for our brothers and sisters. So King Herod was responsible for the execution of James. And seeing that this was a popular move with the authorities, he goes for an even bigger target for the number one at the top and follows up with the imprisonment of Peter, verses 3 and 4. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter. Also, this happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. No doubt Herod has heard about a previous incident when this same Peter, along with John, somehow escaped from jail. Acts chapter 5, you remember the story. So this time he intends to make sure that such a thing doesn't happen again. This time he assigns 16 soldiers to make sure Peter doesn't get out of prison. Four squads of four each working in shifts. So Peter remains there for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We defend religious sensibilities to carry out an execution and trial during the Passover. The whole story has echoes of the trial and execution of the Lord Jesus himself. The outcome seems absolutely inevitable. For King Herod seems to possess all the power. Tomorrow will be the day of the show trial, followed by a summary execution. But Herod has ignored one crucial fact. Something the wise Rabbi Gamaliel had warned the authorities about when they first opposed these followers of Jesus. The futility of fighting against God. You remember what Gamaliel said? Acts 5.38 Therefore in the present case I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail, but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men, you will only find yourselves fighting against God. It is as Herod is about to learn, a battle you can't win. So we turn from enemy action, secondly, to divine intervention. Verses 5 through to 23. And his commentary on Acts, Robert Longnecker writes, But while God does not promise deliverance from persecution and death at crucial times, he often steps in for the honour of his name and the benefit of his people. And when God steps in, he usually does it at the last possible moment. You remember the last possible moment for the children of Israel when they were crossing the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army behind them. It's a wonderful phrase, outbreak of day. The waters parted and the people passed through and the waters closed over the pursuing soldiers and chariots. In this case, it is the middle of the night. The night before the trial. This is the night before the trial. The next day that the Lord rescues Peter from prison. Now, this is a wonderful story, and you, you can imagine it, can't you? There's a lot of humor in this story, if you, if you look at it very closely. There is Peter. He is chained, either arm, by the wrist, to a Roman soldier, who is awake. 
Standing at the prison door are two more Roman soldiers, sentries on guard. These are guys who take their duties seriously. As we will realise, if you, anything that happens to a prisoner, you suffer the penalty he would have suffered if he gets out of it. So these guys aren't dozing away, playing cards, or having a drink, or discussing the weather, right? There's only one guy who's fast asleep, and that's Peter. But there is a divine solution, for suddenly, the Lord rescues Peter by sending his angel. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. Now, I've seen angels in action already in act in a variety of situations, but this angel has a particular assignment from heaven. He is sent to rescue people, Peter, from prison. Notice, it is a task that he carries out with ease. Do you know what the most difficult part of the assignment was for the angel? Waking Peter up. You know, this wonderful picture of the, the light shines in, her, in, in the cell. It's probably the picture that Wesley uses, you know, you know the long man prison spirit lay fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. Wesley uses it as a picture of salvation. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. He doesn't say, you know, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. A dig in the ribs woke me up, and I went my way. You know, something like that. It's good for you. A modern version. <laughs> the light doesn't disturb him. This is bright light shines. This angel appears, and then the angel goes across their pieces. Wake up, quickly, get up. Warren Wisby, lovely American preacher and pastor, he's got a little book on Acts, well worth reading. It's two volumes actually. He says, imagine waking up to a miracle and having an angel for your alarm clock. Just as an aside. Very interesting, isn't it, that Peter could sleep so soundly the night before he's going to be put on trial and executed. How did he do it? Well, well, some people think that Peter also remembered that prophecy. Remember the end of John chapter 21, when the Lord Jesus Christ said to Peter, when you are old, someone will take you and lead you, and that's how you'll die. Peter says, I'm going to sleep because this is not my time. Whatever the case, if you are a believer... Whatever lies ahead tomorrow, whatever you're waiting for that fills you with apprehension, you should be able to say with the psalmist, it's a lovely verse, Psalm 4, 8, I will lie down and sleep in peace, for you, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Just as an aside, how well do you sleep? I mean, there are all sorts of reasons why we don't sleep well. But one of them shouldn't be worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. Because your life and times are in God's hands. Lovely Psalm 139. I love that verse. It talks about, you know, God's intimate care for us in every detail. And it says, when I wake, I'm still with thee. You either awake on earth, or you awake in glory, in God's presence. What could be more wonderful? So Peter's asleep. Okay, let's move on. The soldiers don't notice anything. And he says, quick, get ready. Pull your cloak together. Let's get out of here. Out they go through the two doors. The final prison door outside opens, it says, by itself. It's, the Greek word is automate. Automatic doors. It's, you thought automatic doors were a new invention? It's, you know, they walk up to these big prison doors and, whoof. You know, like the ones you get in the hospital when you go, and it's only when they're a street length away from the prison, probably the prison was in the Antonia Fortress on the northwest of the temple area, when the angel disappears, that Peter realizes it's not a dream. And then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt 
that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. So Peter makes his way to a place he knows where the believers will be meeting. Although the believers had sold much of their property, some of them, not all of them, is a big house for lots of people to meet. It's the, it's the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, and we'll meet John Mark later in the story. Many people, verse 12 we read, had gathered and were praying. Now we learn a second thing. The Lord rescues Peter by sending his angel and, and by answering the prayers of his people. The Lord rescues Peter by sending his angel and by answering the prayers of his people. Uh, Luke has already told us at the beginning of this story, verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The word translated earnestly is the word stretched out, outstretched. It's a picture of your hands being outstretched. Often people today in church uh, raise their hands in praise. There's nothing wrong with that, but God's people raise their hands in prayer, usually standing, and as it were, with their hands reaching up to heaven. Interesting, we don't do that in our prayer meetings, do we? Interesting, if we all stood up and just, you know, as it were, reached up to God and implored him to act. It's a sign of seriousness. The related word is used of our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed earnestly, not casually. No doubt these same people had prayed earnestly for, for James. But the fact that he'd been executed by Herod didn't mean they said, oh, prayer's a waste of time, let's forget it. They prayed to the Sovereign Lord who was able to do anything, but the Sovereign Lord who would do as he chose. You see, despite divine sovereignty, the Lord gives human responsibility to us. And the way we exercise human responsibility, if you are a believer, to the greatest effect is by prayer. All of you nod your heads in Charlotte Chaplin and say, yeah, we believe that. But we don't really believe it. Otherwise, there'd be more of us at the prayer meeting than there are at church on Sunday. We really believe that. The 17th century Puritan preacher and Pastor Thomas Watson wrote, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. And you need to keep those two things in, in balance. The angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer fetched the angel. If we really believe that, would we not pray more fervently with outstretched hands? With a bit more passion. Alexander White, who ministered recent Georges over the road and at New College. The end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, said, let every man put his passion into his prayers. And the believers in Jerusalem believed in prayer, so much so that many people were gathered for prayer at the home of Mary as Peter approached the outer entrance and knocked on the door. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. Now, just another interesting aside is this. Angels can open locked prison doors, but people must open doors to their homes and their lives. Warren Wisby again comments, God alone can do the extraordinary, but his people must do the ordinary. God never wastes miracles. And the story that follows, again, is very humorous. It surely dispels 
any questions about its authenticity. Who's going to tell a story about the early church that paints them in such a disbelieving light? There they are, praying at the prayer meeting. Their prayer meeting is interrupted. Actually, if you're at the prayer meeting, and there are about 45 of us on Wednesday, if you're at the church prayer meeting on Wednesday, our prayer meeting was also interrupted uh, by two young men, very well dressed in suits, who came in and said, what's going off here? And we said, it's a prayer meeting. They said, can we join you? Uh, interesting what they said. They said, we have walked past this building many times before, but it never seems very welcoming with those bars and everything on the windows, but it was open this evening, so we came in. Well, they actually interrupted the prayer meeting Rodney was leading when we'd been praying for some time and said, could we say a few words? I'm not going to tell you what happened. You shouldn't be at the prayer meeting, but ask, find one of the 50, 45 people who were there and they'll tell you what actually happened. It's very encouraging, actually. Well, here's a prayer meeting that's being interrupted. Probably just picture it for a moment. This is a big house, so there would be a door with an outer courtyard and then some kind of vestibule probably, and all the people are praying in the back, this crowd of people praying at this prayer meeting. And there's a knocking at the door. Now, I don't know if the people in the prayer meeting heard the knocking, but a servant girl called Rhoda definitely heard the knocking. So she goes to the door. This is the middle of the night. This is a church under pressure. What do you think she does? Does she fling the door open and say, Welcome! She says, Who's there? And a voice comes. It's me, Peter. And she recognizes his voice. And she's so excited, she forgets to open the door. So she runs back into the prayer meeting where they're all saying, Lord, release Peter. Lord, work with your outstretched hand and mighty arm, or whatever they prayed in those days, you know. Biblical language. They said, excuse me. Peter's at the door. And they said, don't be stupid. You're mad. She said, no, he's definitely Peter. I heard his voice. Must be his angel. I mean, think about it. Why would angels knock on doors? They can walk through doors. And she said, no, no, he's definitely Peter. And notice the plural, they. It's a lovely story. You imagine them all the premises saying, Let's go and check this out. You know, and this whole group of people stop praying and they all sort of edge towards the door, you know, and they go through the... the and somebody says, who's going to open the door? It's me, Peter. And they open the door. It's Peter. Now, before we're too quick to criticise them for their lack of faith and expectation in what they were praying for, we would do well to examine our own expectations when we pray. We really expect God to answer prayer. Thankfully, as the Apostle Paul reminded the Christians in Ephesus, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. You see, you don't, don't decide not to pray because you say you've got no faith. You may say, well, I've not got that kind of faith. I'm not going to pray. Jesus said, faith as big as a grain of mustard seed, just the presence of faith is enough where two or three gather in my name. There I am among them. Or use the prayer of that demon. You remember the man of that demon-possessed boy? And the disciples could do nothing for him. And Jesus said, just believe. And he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Do you not feel like that when you pray sometimes about situations, about people, about family, illness, jobs, bereavement? Lord, I believe. Help, Help my unbelief. So Peter silences the hubbub. Tells them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And after instructing them to tell James, this is another James, of course, the brother of Jesus, who assumes leadership of the church now, 
And the other brothers, what has happened? He leaves them. Luke tells us for another place. Lots of speculation about the other place. All we know is we don't know where it was. But Peter eventually reappears in Antioch. You can read that in Galatians 2. And finally in Acts 15, back in Jerusalem after the death of Herod. If the believers were amazed at Peter's appearance, the soldiers were also amazed at his disappearance. And alarmed, they can find no trace of him. You imagine these two soldiers there with chains, loose chains, no Peter. And they anxiously, desperately search. But they can't find him. And Herod is none too pleased. And the punishment is carried out for the soldiers who fail to do their duty. You can hardly blame them when an angel did it. They're executed at Herod's orders. But notice the second thing. The Lord intervenes to rescue Peter. But secondly, the Lord intervenes. The Lord judges Herod. Verses 19 to 23. Probably annoyed and humiliated, Herod retreats to his provincial capital, Caesarea. Ostensibly, he's gone there to settle a quarrel. Herod was great at quarrels with everybody. And he's had a quarrel with these two cities of Tyre and Sidon about food supplies. And through the offices of an intermediary, one of his servants called Blasters, and probably the exchange of some backhanders as well, the issue is settled. And to commemorate the new agreement, Herod gives a speech in the great amphitheater that's built there. You've still seen the ruins of it, if you've been there, which I have, uh, seated on his throne. Uh, This story is also recorded by Josephus, the Jewish historian, in in great detail. He reports that Herod got up early in the morning, and the huge crowd was there, and he came in this fantastic silver robe, and the sun's rays shone on it, and it glistened brightly in the sunlight. We don't know what he said, but we know what the people said. No doubt eager to flatter him, they shout, this is the voice of a god not of a man. We saw in this story that when Cornelius, the Roman centurion, met Peter and fell on his feet before him in reverence, Peter is horrified and pulls him to his feet and says, stand up, I am myself and only a man. Later in the book of Acts, when Paul and Barnabas arrived at a place called Lystra and Paul heals the lame man, the people shout out, the gods have come to us in human form. And Paul and Barnabas are horrified. They tear their robes. And rush into the crowd shouting, men, why are you doing this? We're only men like you. They know the great danger of taking what belongs only to God to themselves. But Herod's response is very different. He fails to reprove the crowd. Instead, he takes to himself the praise that belongs to God alone. And is instantly judged by the Lord for his pride. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. He was eaten by worms and died. Verse 23. If you're one of the many medics who attend Charlotte Chapel, you can read upon the various suggestions about the exact diagnosis of his disease, ranging from roundworms to tapeworms to cystic rupture or intestinal obstruction. What really matters is not the medical diagnosis, but the theological diagnosis. He was judged by the Lord, who alone is God, who sends his angel now for a very different purpose. Not to save, but to kill. You see... Despite outward appearances, Herod was not the true king. In the NIV application commentary, Ajit Fernando comments, There is irony here, for the man who was glorious on the outside was rotting with worms on the inside. But the fate of Herod is a solitary challenge to our culture, which is also obsessed with celebrities, also obsessed by outward appearance where people worship at the shrine of outward appearance rather than inner beauty and character. 
where people bow their knee to human tyrants who claim absolute power for themselves, a power that only belongs to God. And in the end, the Lord judges all such people and all such attitudes. He may do it instantly, as he did with Herod, demonstrably. But in the end, it is God who judges. There is only one true king, King Jesus. And the wise person bows before him in worship. We trust him as saviour, or we face him as judge. We trust him as saviour, or we face him as judge. Significantly, the Lord Jesus Christ, who spoke far more about hell than he did about heaven, described the final judgment as the place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Mark 9, 48. Have you bowed the knee to Jesus? Is he your King and Lord? Or are you living life your way, running your own life, ultimately in defiance of him who alone deserves and demands your worship? Nearly finished. Conclusion. Notice the final outcome of the story. The opponent of God dies. Herod dies at the age of 54 after seven year rule. The year by our later dating is AD 44. It was not called AD 44 then. 44 AD Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. But it was the year of our Lord. For while Herod dies... The word of God flourishes, but the word of God continued to increase and to spread. Verse 24. Soon it will be carried out further by Paul and Barnabas along with John Mark. As God willing, we'll see when we resume in late August as they carry the gospel into Europe and eventually it comes to our shores. The spreading flame continues to spread. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary, John Stock concludes. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. And so it is today, despite outward appearances, despite the parlous state of the church in the UK and Scotland. That alone gives us any hope for the conversion of the UK, for the salvation of the world, for the spreading flame is the inextinguishable flame. Let's pray together.